Welcome to Trauma Talks, the official podcast of the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. We're your hosts, Dr. Melissa Zielinski and Marley Fradley. Each month, we'll be bringing you interesting insights, fascinating research, and compelling stories from our members of ISTSS. We're here to illuminate the different facets of trauma and how people can heal from these experiences. This month, we're glad to be joined by Dr. Xingfeng Xie and Dr. Mark Zimmerman, who will be sharing with us about racism and firearm injury disparities. Welcome, and please take a minute to introduce yourselves. Hi, this is Xingfeng Xie. I am a research assistant professor at the University of Michigan Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. Um, my research focuses on using a multi-domain analysis to understand the disparities especially in firearm injury and uh, violence exposure, resulting, resulting from racism and structural racism especially. I also seek to identify behavioral, inter interpersonal, and community factors that promote resilience among communities shouldering the unjust burden of violence and racism. And therefore, hopefully we can inform prevention efforts. And I am Mark Zimmerman, the co-director of the University of Michigan Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention. I'm also the co-director of the National Center for School Safety that's based in the Institute. Uh, and I am uh, the director of the Youth Violence Prevention Center funded by the CDC. My research focuses on positive youth development. Uh, I also study adolescent health and resiliency, uh, applications of empowerment theory. Um, and one of the programs that I'm uh, currently involved in is uh, Youth Empowerment Solutions, which uh, uses uh, our application of empowerment theory to reduce youth violence. Thank you both so much for being here with us today. We're really excited to uh, have a conversation with you and get to share just all of the wisdom that you have with our members. I have just a really, I guess, foundational question to start off with. Um, so when we are talking about firearm injury disparities, what do we mean when we say that term, firearm injury disparities? Firearm injury disparities refer to the unequal distribution of firearm-related injuries and deaths across different groups and populations. Uh, and this can be due to a variety of factors, such as income inequality, uh, under-resourced public services, lack of opportunities, uh, firearm availability, elevated exposure to violence and discrimination. I'd like to add that uh, we can think about disparities uh, by geography. For example, uh, there are more injuries and uh, deaths from uh, relating to suicide in rural America. There is more uh, injuries and uh, death due to interpersonal violence in uh, more urban centers. And so there, there's a geography uh, uh, difference as well as uh, gender differences. Uh, women are more likely to be victimized by firearms in uh, intimate partner violence, for example. Uh, and then, of course, there are racial disparities, and uh, those are also e equally uh, uh, problematic and, and unequally distributed. It's really helpful. Um, and I think, you know, we're going to dive into an element of that and uh, think specifically about um, the relationship between racism and discrimination and firearm um, injury. Um, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that relationship and kind of what that brings up for you when, um, when we talk about those two pieces together. Well, when we think about racism and discrimination, it's sort of 
two, there's two different aspects to that. One is uh, structural racism, uh, and that is the uh, legacy of redlining, uh, the, of the, this, uh, identifying where people can live in an urban center, um, educational policies that might create more or less opportunities, opportunity structures in communities as well. So there's a whole level of um, uh, structural factors. Another example is vacant lots. Uh, vacant lots uh, become uh, hot spots for crime because there's this uh, eyes on the street. Those are unequally distributed in the United States. Those are mostly in urban centers, mostly in urban centers that are disadvantaged because of um, disen uh, disenfranchisement of economic opportunities, uh, the deindustrialization of the North and many factories moving South. And so many cities have been left with um, vacant lots, uh, abandoned homes, uh, and streets that uh, may have fewer people on them. There's another aspect of racism and discrimination and firearm injury, and that is just the covert uh, racism uh, that may occur, the unconscious bias that we hear about um, when a police officer might come to a car uh, where there's a legally owned gun in that car and that how that might be differentially addressed by a police officer. But there's also the explicit uh, examples of racism. And I think Xing Fang can talk about some of the work with, that she's been, been doing with Asian Americans and uh, the fact that uh, during COVID, Asian Americans felt more threatened. And so we're actually purchasing guns to protect themselves for fear of racism against them. So I'll let Xing Fang talk a little bit about that. Sure, I can uh, directly hop on this. Um, I was initially motivated to do this research because of an observation of a surge of the hate incidents uh, targeting Asian Americans since the beginning of the pandemic. And then we also saw increased discussion of uh, firearm purchase among our Asian American communities and for the reason for protection, like Mark mentioned. Um, so. I, I just want to highlight how the search looked like. Um, take the period of March 2020 to February 2021, for example, just within that one year period, there were almost 3,800 incidents that's reported by Asian American community. And now know that that's a, a huge underestimate, right? And that's only the ones that's being reported, not counting the ones that are not being reported. And um, there are other studies that have revealed that the hate crime against the Asian American community increased by almost 200% in the beginning of 2021. So this is like a continuous issue. Um, uh, there's also mass shooting, like uh, most of us have heard of, the at, like the Atlanta spot shooting that's racially targeting. Um, which gathered massive media attention and then of course, among Asian American community, that's elevated, triggered, triggering for Asian American communities, a lot of fears and mental distress that's experienced by the community. Now, understandably, there are living in this fear, there are a lot of discussion and sharp rise of firearm purchase nationwide, and that includes Asian Americans. Um, my collaborator, Dr. Zuyin Wu, for example, was also notified by the community partners that she'd been working with, and they they got a lot of Asian community members visiting the firearm outlet and the owner of the outlet 
uh, outlet reach out and say, hey, we noticed a lot of Asian Americans come to our shop to purchase firearm. Uh, we want to know what's the reason driving them that. Um, so that's how we really want to start this research um, and want to test the hypothesis we had, which is uh, this interest increase the uh, increased racism experience uh, linked to this firearm purchase. Um, and we did find that our finding uh, suggests that since that pandemic, racism experience likely played a significant role in the concern of safety and therefore firearm purchase for protection. Um, I just want to add that um, it is con not, it, the firearm purchase itself is not what we're concerning. What is concerning is that we also know that 55% of our study participants are the first time gun owners. We know nothing about their knowledge, um, how they store their firearm, um, you know, those, those firearm related behavior is something we need to learn more. Uh, from our community members. Thank you so much for explaining that, Dr. Shipp. Um, I'm wondering if, if you or if both of you might go into a little more detail about how different populations can be affected by racist experiences and firearm-related behaviors um, and how these experiences of racism impact firearm-related behaviors. Well, I can talk about that a little bit, and then Xingfang, for sure, you know, um, add on. But, um, the firearm violence affects really every community, as I mentioned before, um, and, and different racial groups in different ways. But African Americans are uh, certainly much more affected by interpersonal violence than other groups. Part of that reason is because of the uh, structural racism that has occurred in the United States around uh, concentrating poverty. Um, poverty is correlated with, uh, with race often. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the, the, it's concentrated by the issues that I mentioned earlier about redlining. Um, and then uh, if there's lower income, it's uh, the schools aren't as good. Kids don't develop the right kind of uh, critical thinking skills because there's a attention to other topics and other issues um, around uh, community violence around them and uh, more safety concerns. It's notable, however, that um, most mass shootings have occurred in suburban schools, uh, and that's what gets a lot of attention. Uh, but there are certainly the, uh, the, the one-off kinds of shootings that do occur across the United States in schools, uh, and especially in, in urban centers. I also want to say that uh, it's, it's the number one cause of death for really all kids now, but it has been a leading cause of death for African-American youths 15 to 19 years old for uh, too long in, in the United States. Um, and then the other ways it, it, you know, it, it's experienced, I just think about um, what would the scene have looked like on January 6th if the people storming the Capitol were uh, African-American versus uh, predominantly white. Um, we had a similar kind of situation here in, in uh, Lansing at our state Capitol in Michigan and uh, there was some demonstrations going on um, during uh, COVID and several armed 
white men armed with um, rifles and, um, and long guns. Um, and nothing really happened. There was no, no confrontation. But we know, given the, the different uh, shootings, and I can name, we can all name names, um, and, and how that's been, uh, how, how police respond differently when an African-American person has a gun or is thought to even have a gun versus, uh, versus uh, an, a, a white individual. So, um, it, and that has significant effects on, on trust in government, on trust in police, um, the Black Panthers in the 1960s armed themselves because the police were not um, uh, policing the streets of Oakland, California at the time. And at the time, the governor of California said there is no real reason why citizens should have to be so armed um, for, uh, you know, to, to protect themselves. That's a, that's a policing matter. Uh, and actually... Uh, signed some laws that were uh, really took away people's some of people's rights to uh, own guns, and that governor was uh, the soon to become uh, President Ronald Reagan. And so, uh, it's it, people are treated differently because of their race, and it absolutely felt plays itself out in firearms as well. Totally, totally agree with Morgan. I, I just want to um, add one thing, and, and I think it's commonly experienced by marginalized, uh, uh, racially minoritized community, is that sense of safety is just not there. And it's it's a lot of it is because of the racism that's existing in our society and just imagine that sense of safety and their desire to have protection can be a driving factor uh, for them to uh, seek for firearm purchase and um, and we just want to um, learn more about about this and uh, work with carefully with the potential firearm owners and how we could figure out their way, evidence, practice, strategies that really help all of us and help them to achieve this goal for safety. And that, uh, to me, it takes addressing the upper level cause, right, which is racism. Yeah, thank you so much. So could you share just a little bit more about why it's important to consider firearm-related behaviors within the context of race? Yeah, so I, I can uh, uh, give one example, and Mark, please chime in. And, and in our Asian American study that uh, we conducted, it, we found that about 70% of the gun owners um, said they carry their gun more frequently since the pandemic because they want protection. So that's just one example how the lack of safety can actually increase the carriage behavior and increased carriage behavior, of course, increase the likelihood that you get you might get injured uh, from firearm. Um, so that linkage is something we want to pay attention to. Yeah, and we, we also think about the upstream, um, you know, we often think about firearm related behaviors, at least uh, I think in the Institute, we often think about them as the tip of the iceberg and some of the root causes that 
may lead uh, individuals to violent behavior, um, down um, roads of uh, uh, unlawful behavior, drug use, drug selling. You know, th these are all sort of um, precursing events to that final event of actually, you know, needing a gun to protect yourself or whatnot. So one of the things that we try to do is look upstream a little bit and, and help communities that have a lot of vacancy, um, how what they can do to sort of put more eyes on the streets, so to speak. We, we call it busy streets. You may have heard of broken windows theory is, is, is um, popularizes the idea of one broken window leads to another, no one's watching, and so more and more negative behaviors occur, and it's the, the slow decline of a neighborhood. Well, we said, what happens if you build it? Uh, and so what happens if you make a busy street? What happens if you clean up those lots? What happens if you do that with community residents in collaboration with uh, police, um, the, the city council, um, land banks, what have you in, in any uh, given community? In other words, it's not on, it's not on the responsibility of the people who uh, live in communities like that, that they, it's all on them. But in collaboration um, and, and kind of take back their, their neighborhoods, basically, make it look nice, make it clear that there's a message that people care and are paying attention to this neighborhood. And what we find is when we do that, when, when they do that, I should say, when we evaluate it, crime goes down, violent crime goes down, firearm-related incidents go down. And so, you know, those are, is it addressing racism per se? No, but what it might be doing and helping with is addressing some of the consequences of the structural racism that has occurred in our nation really since its inception. That's really helpful to hear about. And I know we're going to dive more into interventions um, in a little bit as well. Um, first, I kind of wanted to back up and just um, so we've been talking about, you know, elevated exposure to violence as a result of structural racism. Um, I wonder if you could talk about for our listeners uh, just about sort of some of the short and longer term effects of violence, um, firearm violence exposure and what we see in folks that have those experiences. Mark, I, I could try to take on. Maybe. Oh, please. I was just going to say the same thing, <laughs> Xing Fang. You know, this is Xing Fang has done a lot of research in this on this topic in particular. The sequelae of violence exposure and firearm violence exposure is significant and deep and um, widespread. So Xing Fang, should share some of the research that you've done recently. Sure thing. Um, first of all, let, let's let's talk about short term. What we know about the short term effects of uh, gun or firearm or violence exposure, um, we know that the direct exposure to violence, um, the individuals may experience physical injuries, post-traumatic uh, post stress symptoms, Major, major depression and other adverse psychological outcomes. Now, for the long term, this is something um, I've done um, some research around the long term effect of exposure to violence, and we know that can lead to chronic health problems. Um, uh, PTSD, major depression, again, substance use disorder um, in in using this longitudinal data, 24-year-long 20, uh, long longitudinal data, that's actually a project that 
by Dr. Zimmerman Mark. Um, we found that exposure to violence during adolescence can actually link to higher risk of early onset hypertension in young adulthood. And we also found that it can link to um, higher risk of cancer, for example, abnormal pap smear result um, or other chronic conditions. And some of it is due to um, uh, health risk behaviors, but some of them is just a direct link that we're seeing uh, on these hypertension or high, um, cancer outcomes. So yeah, um, Mark, please add any thoughts. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, CDC um, has a, uh, I've, I've seen some of the staff in the National Center for um, Injury Prevention and Control and they have a, 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 a really a, a slide that I've used to show all of the linkages, the researchers around the country of violence exposure. Uh, and again, firearm violence is sort of the, the top of that pyramid and the most uh, stressful. And it's related to alcohol and other drugs. It's related to risky sexual behavior. Um, some of the research that you know, I've done with some colleagues uh, in Texas have found that women are less likely to use uh, birth control uh, when, they're in, when they hear and, and live near violence. Um, there's uh, cigarette use. So, so it, it's on and on. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of an interesting uh, thing to think about also when school shootings occur. Um, people are afraid to send their kids to school. Is it safe to send my kid to school? Um, you know, what, so, so it has these long-term effects. And then one of the things that we do in the National Center for School Safety uh, that Xing Feng and I work in as well is uh, trauma-informed care. Kids then come to school and they're now traumatized. They're, and, and these might be kids who were not even near where the shooting was in the school, but it was their friends or it was in that school. Or it could be an, an adjacent community school uh, and they're traumatized. And then that trauma has an effect on their learning in that school, has an effect on their behavior in that school, uh, and um, it, you know their attention and their able ability to do homework and being able to help kids through that process is also another uh, another uh, real concern. The the sequelae of firearm violence uh, is, as, as Xingfeng said, goes far beyond the actual injured individuals. Think also about the family members who've lost somebody or who is now dealing with somebody who has you know, been injured and is now coping with that um, injury, whether that's a, um, a, a relatively minor injury or a serious injury that may have impaired their ability to walk or their ability to think in the same way because it was a brain injury. So there's, there's so many sequelae down, all the way down the line and we haven't even talked about uh, issues around uh, the, the legal system and criminal justice system uh, and the costs associated with that. So it, it is deep, multi-sectoral, and it's a significant uh, health issue in the United States. There's no question. Well, thank you both so much for sharing. Um, 
about that. Something that you know you guys have mentioned a little bit so far, and our listeners might be wondering at this point um, is about you know what can we do at this point. And I want to go back to something you mentioned before, and that you mentioned recently, which is about transformation of vacant lots and providing school-based interventions. Do you think that you could go um, into more detail on that, or share more about what other interventions or initiatives um, could be helpful in protecting from firearm-related risks or addressing the root causes of them? Sure. Xingfang, you want to talk a little bit about what we, we, we do with schools? You know, it's very interesting. School violence prevention, everyone thinks about, oh, you, you need to put up uh, metal detectors and locked doors. Yeah, those might be helpful. Certainly controlled you know, access is, is important. But really, we go way deeper than that, way further upstream about that. Because if, you know, what I say about, uh, uh, about like a metal detector is, if you have to catch a kid who's walking in school with a metal with a gun, you've already lost. You've you've already behind the eight ball. Why are they coming there with a gun in the first place? And we're doing all sorts of things to kind of change that. So Xing Feng, I know I just talked a lot. Why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about some of the things that you know we're working with schools to evaluate and and help them do? Oh my! Thank you for bringing this up. Yes, we are. You know, our, our team oftentimes have this uh, really in depth discussion. So when we talked about school violence prevention, we really want to think comprehensively. We really want to think, you know, it's not only the hardening school part, what we are calling like metal detector and, and, and um, so on. It, it's more about this social uh, school climate part that uh, we see stronger evidence around um, their effectiveness of uh, violence prevention or school safety promotion, right? Um, and even with um, anonymous reporting system, for example, Mark and I and um, our colleague and the, the most recent evidence that we found in our own study is that you want to combine that anonymous re reporting system with student engaged training, with student-led uh, engagement activities in the school to see that effect um, to really generate um, a good, a positive outcome. So it's just one example, like how we want to consider the prevention effort more comprehensively and go broader and upper, upper screen. Yeah, and, and, and some other, you, you're asking about some other kinds of interventions. Um, I, I mentioned a little bit about the greening and the busy streets idea community-engaged greening, and the, we work with um, the uh, Center for uh, Community Progress that's based in Detroit, and they have some, uh, we work with them with developing uh, how-tos, with working with land banks on, on uh, reclaiming and reusing vacant lots into useful ways, gardens, community gardens, little pocket parks, um, community centers, that kind of thing. Um, we also have a program called Youth Empowerment Solutions, that we have worked with as an after-school program to engage kids in positive community change. And basically it's a curriculum working with the middle school kids um, to help them kind of think critically about the safe and not safe places in their communities and why they are such in those ways and then what they can do, what kind of changes they can make um, in their community. And then, and then they actually make those changes and they've done things from a community garden um, to painting a mural to community celebrations. And, you know, there's a website that people can go to, and I don't know if I'm allowed to give a commercial, but I will real quickly say, 
Uh, if you go to yes.sph.umich.edu, um, you could learn, you could download the curriculum for free uh, and, and apply it or any parts of it to your own community. And we have found it to, uh, in, in comparison group studies, we have found it to um, reduce kids' violent behavior um, and increase the, their positive behaviors and engagement in school. Uh, we also have colleagues who are doing work in uh, the emergency department, doing a brief intervention for kids who come in, in with an injury, doing using a motivational interviewing strategy. Um, we, it's been effective in, in randomized control group designs, uh, and that uh, is now we're testing it to roll it out in a uh, in in the uh, healthcare system more broadly to pediatrics and more primary care situations to see if we can. Uh, get kids to, you know, hear about different strategies and then to, you know, do the motivational interviewing to kind of uh, do different kinds of uh, actions when faced with a reason why you might pick up a gun or be violent for any other reason. Just a lot of really incredible work to hear about so much. It, it's clear that you all are doing in this space. Um, as we think about kind of what's next, I'm wondering like what you'll see as the most pressing research gaps when it comes to understanding, especially how racism impacts firearm injury disparities. Um, so what are those gaps? What do you think might be needed to address the gaps? Be great to hear a little bit about. So I'll take a crack of it and, and then Mark can um, hop on to to add more to um so when we think about racism experience we oftentimes think about interpersonal racism acts or violence but you know like mark uh elucidated uh, for us earlier, it is very important to know that these are products of much upper stream structural level of racism um, that has been longstanding and that interplay between structural structural racism and these interpersonal racism, racism is something we are really hoping to see um, to learn more um, and that can include disparate healthcare access that could include looking to redlining and racial segregation that could include um, policies that contribute to um, the these disparity outcomes or cultural racism right and how that could deprive people from equal access to resources opportunities or services um, so our goal is to get a better understanding of the root causes of the, the cause, <laughs> to say that. And if that fall on a dress, I feel like that's more like putting a bandaid on a deeper wound. Uh, so we really, the urgent need is for us to get a better understanding how that interplay of the structural racism can really influence the firearm injury risk among our communities. And, and then turn those into interventions that we can actually do to kind of make a change. So another another uh, gap is um, working with police. Um, you know, there's lots of evidence, obviously, of um, uh, of bi bias police uh, policing. Uh, and I, but we shouldn't vilify the police um, all the way around. And and there are training that we can do, and there are trainings that have been done. They haven't been evaluated very well. 
they haven't looked at behavior or behavior change. They haven't used necessarily control group designs and that sort of thing. So that's a glaring gap. That I th and I think, you know, in the law enforcement I've sp spoken to, there'd be significant open openness to doing just that kind of thing. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody thinks that, that what's going on is a good idea. Um, and I think they would be in the first in line to say, let's figure out how do we address this problem. So that's one issue specifically around racism in, in, in particular as well. But another one I just want to say, and um, I know we're going a little longer than most of these um, podcasts go, but uh, the other one that I think is really important uh, to address this issue is a pipeline issue. And that is we need a, a major gap is is expanding the the perspectives and the people doing research in this topic so that we can have the kind of perspectives that we need to really address um, racism in, in all of its forms. And, um, you know, like I would never ever dawned on me, for example, to do a study about uh, COVID and racism among Asian Americans. Um, but it took Xingfang to really kind of raise my consciousness about that and to you know, un, you know, really critically look at my own privilege in, in thinking about those kind of things. And so pipeline is, is a huge issue that we all need to kind of work on. We need to diversify, diversify uh, our work and, and we need to do it, you know, not just racially, but uh, you know, geographically as well. In, in many ways, we haven't been doing this kind of a search on firearm uh, on firearm related uh, injury, uh, and we need to expand it and we need to build the field. And that's an important gap that um, we at the Institute are working hard to try to fill. Thank you both so much for joining us today and for sharing your work and your expertise. Um, gun related violence and racism are unfortunately topics that always feel very timely to discuss, but it really sounds like there's a lot of excellent work being done and a lot of room for positive change in the future. Where can our listeners go to learn more about these topics? So if you're interested in our research and the most uh, current evidence-based practices, check out our website at firearminjury.umich.edu. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us today for this episode of Trauma Talks, the official podcast of ISTSS.